Well, if you had the opportunity to invite any person from history, whether dead or alive, obviously the dead ones would be alive, to dinner, right? Who would you invite? If you could choose anyone from all of human history, and you can have dinner with them and ask them whatever you want, you can bring them back, you, know, you can find out all these things, who would you have at the table? It's a, it's a common question that people kind of ask, often in Christian groups. It's a bit of a, if you've been in Christian groups for a while, maybe you're like, oh, I know this question. You know, but people ask it from all over the world. It's a common kind of icebreaker because it's, it's helpful. It helps you to know a bit more about the people that you're around. What are their likes and interests? Who are they like to be around? But in Christian circles, the inevitable answer to the question of who do you want to have dinner with is always said like that, right? (laughs) And I want to put it to you that I think even in some non-Christian circles, people might say Jesus as well. Because as you stand back and look at the events of history, you actually see that Jesus has been one of the most influential people to walk the face of this earth. In fact, a Cambridge University Press study by Professors Skinner and Ward was put out in a book called Who is the Greatest? And this book went through the people who've been the most influential throughout human history and they came to the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth has been the most influential person in human history on the Western world. So there is more than just Christians that are interested in finding out about this man Jesus. Over the last few months, we've been looking as a church through the life of Jesus through the eyewitness accounts of a doctor called Luke. He's gathered together these accounts for us. Have a look at what he said back at the start so we can understand what he's doing and how we get a picture of Jesus. He says this in Luke 1 verse 1. It's on the screen. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled amongst us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the very age that the events of Jesus' life happened, Jesus was the talk of the town. He was so influential that many accounts of his life were compiled, coming from eyewitnesses across the ancient Near East. Jesus is no fairy tale. Christianity is not based on some moral or mythical ideology that helps people to think, oh, that's a helpful crutch to get through life. As you look at the accounts, they claim to be based in history, to real people, in real places. And they've had a profound effect on the whole of human history. Christianity, as we come to it, we'll see is no leap in the dark. Luke compiles these events so that you and I might make real choices about who Jesus is and what he's done. And that as we see him correctly, that it might profoundly change the way we see the world around us. But as we look at this section before us today that we just had read for us, the Jesus that we see might be a bit more of a radical dinner guest than many of us first expect. See, in these 14 verses that we see tonight, Jesus firstly humiliates the host who's invited him for dinner. Secondly, he offends all the guests that are there. Then thirdly, he has the hide to say, you know what, you need an entirely new guest list. That's what you need to do to fix this dinner party. I wonder if after seeing Jesus as he's described today, you would still invite him 
to dinner at your place. What we're going to see tonight is that seeing Jesus rightly changes how to rightly see. Seeing Jesus rightly changes how to rightly see. We're going to approach this in a little bit of a different way, looking at three questions Jesus raises for us from these passages. First question, they're in your outline, is number one, are you watching Jesus but not seeing him? Number two, are you seeking your own glory rather than the one who was glorified? And number three, are you limiting your horizon and missing out on true rewards? So three questions, that's how we'll move through tonight in this passage. So number one, are you watching Jesus but not seeing him? Luke 14, chapter 1, starts like this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Now, the Sabbath is just the seventh day of the week. And God had set that day apart for the Jews to be a special day of rest, to keep it holy from the other days for their good and for them to spend time reflecting on the rest God would bring them when he brought them to the fullness of his promises that would come in the future. And the Pharisees, they were just religious leaders. And here we particularly have one of the leading Pharisees. And the information that Luke tells us, the doctor, as he's compiled these events, is that these Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully. Now, that's a loaded term. There's a lot going on behind that term. So, there's been a conflict brewing between Jesus and these Pharisees since chapter 4 of Luke. And that's a lot of conflict. Come back with me. Uh, Chapter 4, it'll be on the screen or flick back in your Bibles. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 28. And just have a listen to some of the heights of this conflict. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. These are not happy campers when it comes to Jesus. But that wasn't the only response to Jesus in this first century age. Just a chapter later, we see in verse 26 of chapter 5, that everyone was astounded at him. They were giving glory to God, they were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen incredible things today. Jesus left some people amazed at him, but others, like these Pharisees, in hostility towards him. And one of the things I love about Jesus is that he doesn't hide from opposition. He doesn't retreat, he hits it on the head. This wasn't the first time he'd spoken about the Sabbath either, We'll hear three other occasions beforehand. Um, Chapter 6, verse 4, the Pharisees, uh, Luke records, were also watching him carefully that day on the Sabbath when he healed a man who had a paralyzed hand. And Jesus responds to them in chapter 6, verse 5, saying this, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's an odd phrase. They're complaining that he's doing work on on the day of rest. Jesus says, the Son of Man, which is his name for himself, is Lord, is King, is Ruler, over the Sabbath. What's he saying? I think you might have missed who I am. It's not that I'm above the Sabbath, it's that I fulfill the Sabbath. The Sabbath was about rest and true rest is found in me and I'm coming to bring rest from sickness, from death, from sin. 
See, the Pharisees had been so eager to keep the law of God, the Sabbath, and all sorts of other laws, that they kind of created these mini-laws to ensure they wouldn't break the ones that God had actually said. Kind of like bumper bowling, right? Ever been bumper bowling? Come on, shove hands. Who knows what bumper bowling is? Oh, are you serious? Okay, so there's this sport, and it's called 10-pin bowling. Who knows about that? Hey, well done. So when you go 10-pin bowling, some lanes have these bumpers where you know how you bowl the ball down and you get it down there? You can pull the bumpers out so no balls ever go in the gutter, right? That's the best way to go bowling because you, you never get the ball in the gutter. Well, these Jews and these Pharisees, they're like, we want to keep the law of God. We want to be straight down the middle. And probably out of good intentions originally, created a whole heap of extra laws to say, well, I must rest on the Sabbath. So that means, well, let me create like 685 or 87 other laws that help me make sure that I keep the laws that God has said. And that's what they did. They created these extra laws so that they would really know how to live and really make sure they would keep God's law. And it became kind of a thing where you had to do exactly what they said. Well, while these Pharisees had been watching Jesus closely to see not only would he keep the ball in the middle, but would he break their little bumper bowling laws? They'd missed who Jesus was. The Sabbath was created to give us rest. Jesus was bringing in true rest. And we'll see him bring this up in the last section of this passage. And instead of resting in Jesus, they rested in their little laws that made them happy because they were within the bounds of where they needed to be. Listen to what Jesus says to these Pharisees. We'll do a quick review of chapter 11 of Luke. Listen to the way he speaks to them. It gives you a kind of a feel for what the dinner party was like in chapter 13, 13, 14. You ready? Luke eleven forty two. But woe to you Pharisees! You give a tenth of your mint and rue and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting others. In other words, you keep the, 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 the law of God to give away the first 10% of all the things that you have, even down to the point of keeping your herb garden. You're like, oh, there's a little bit of mint. Oh, cut off the first 10%. All right, that goes to God. Like, you keep these rules, but you bypass justice for others and love for God. You're so focused on your rules that you neglect God's very character. In the next verse, woe to you Pharisees. You love the front seat in the synagogues and the greeting places in the marketplaces. So great to see. We're not really Pharisees here. There's no one up the front. Well done. But maybe it's like you love the back seats and sitting away from the lecturers, you know. Um, They loved positions of pride. They loved getting special attention. Woe to you, Jesus says. Verse 44, woe to you. How's this for a compliment? You are like unmarked graves, dead people with no names on them. (laughs) The people who walk over them don't even know there's a grave there. You suck in the ground. He's not, this is not a compliment. Jesus here insults the Pharisees. He hits the issue of what's going on in their life on, on, on the head. Luke tells us in the next verse that he actually did insult them. How do we know? Listen to what one of the experts of the law said in verse 45 of chapter 11. One of the experts of the law answered Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things about the Pharisees, you insult us too. (laughs) No kidding. And so this week, when we find Jesus in the home of a leading Pharisee, we understand why he's being significantly watched. 
looked at to see how he will act. These guys are not the most friendliest of friends. Have you ever had that feeling of being significantly watched? Ever kind of had that when you know someone's looking at you? I'm not talking about some kind of creepy CIA, CIA kind of, you know, videos or anything. But I remember for me when I first started dating Sarah. So we were pretty young. A second last year of high school, we started dating. I think um, 17. So you're pretty young at that point. And I remember that at school, we were in the same year at high school, that I wasn't the most popular child uh, with the teachers. Uh, I'd often let my mouth advance where my brain was at. And so I would say things that would get me in trouble. Uh, I remember a physics class where the teacher said, you take a wooden piece of wood. And I was like, excuse me, sir. He's like, yes. I'm like, are there any pieces of wood that aren't wooden? It's physics, right? You've got to know this stuff. Anyway, I then stood outside of the classroom. Now, I remember at that moment, I'd started dating Sarah, and the thing that was a little bit tricky was that Sarah's dad was the head of science, maths, computing at our school. He was my computing studies teacher, and I remember very much, we just started dating, and he wasn't kind of that happy that Sarah was dating me, with Sarah and I sitting together in class, and he's teaching. I don't think he was teaching. I felt like I was being watched very, very carefully, looking for an opportunity to say, this guy's a dropkick, you know, get away from my daughter. I reckon he was probably maybe trying to get some of those opportunities. (laughs) Now, we get on brilliantly now. He's fantastic. But I'm pretty sure at that moment, his hawk eyes were just looking for an opportunity to get me away from Sarah. Jesus was being carefully watched. But did you notice, he still goes to dinner with the Pharisees. It's a bit of a side note, but... Despite their hypocrisy and their vengeance towards Jesus, he still eats with them. I think it shows us how fickle we are with our relationships. How often we're like, oh, I wouldn't have dinner with them. (laughs) Over such insignificant things that we divide over. Yet Jesus can eat with the Pharisees. If he can eat with these Pharisees, perhaps we need to rethink who we're happy to invite for dinner. Well, Jesus at this moment is being watched. Not only were they waiting for Jesus to fail, but I think they were seeming to set him up to fail. So they're there at a dinner party that he's been invited to. What was a man who'd been ceremonially unclean, who was filled full of fluid, what was he doing at a private dinner party? Why was he there? I mean, he could have just stumbled in off the street and then like, there's this guy there. He could have been from the company of the Pharisees, perhaps, but if they were good Pharisees, he probably would not have been there because he would have been unclean before them. And you notice, at the very moment the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, Luke suddenly shows that there pops up a man in need of healing, and oh, it's the Sabbath. Feels like a trap to me. On the day he couldn't legally heal because of the bumper bowling rules, right? On seeing this man, Jesus says in verse 3, In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. The amazing thing here isn't the fact that Jesus heals. It's his insight into the heart of the Pharisees that are there. What does he do to them? Silences them. 
The accusers get accused, the watchers get watched. And then Jesus goes on to point out even further their hypocrisy. He shows them that they're using a God-given law intended for the good of humanity and they're turning into something that limits God's goodness. You can't do good on the Sabbath because of these extra laws that you have. And he shows them that, look, you're happy to pull your own son or your ox out of a well if it should fall in on the Sabbath. But this guy, you're like, no, you can't do that. You can't heal him today. You've got some set of rules for yourselves and some set of rules for everyone else. What we see here is that those that were watching Jesus have not seen who He really is. They've been watching intently, but not seen Him. Just four verses earlier, Luke records Jesus saying this, chapter 13, verse 34. Have a listen. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is abandoned you. And I tell you, you ready? You will not see me until the time comes when you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Jesus is not just playing some dirty trick to show the Pharisees up here. He's not going to dinner with them to show them how bad they are. He cares for them. He longs to gather Israel back together as a hen longs to gather up his chicks. Lachlan showed us last week. But they're not willing. They're watching, but they're not seeing. They're looking, but they're, they're not seeing who He is. And so Jesus here acts like a careful heart surgeon. He goes to work on these Pharisees, these children of Israel, to do surgery on their hearts so they might see Him for who He is. And I think this section here is about Jesus' identity first. If you recognize who Jesus is, if you see him as the one who has come to fulfill the law, then it will dramatically change how you live. Let me show you three ways Jesus does heart surgery on the Pharisees in this section here. Number one, he highlights their abuse of a God-given law by turning it into a cruel one. It's easy for us to kind of make applications of God's law that end up being bigger or more, or taking the place of God's law, or carrying more weight than God's law. So, one might be, um, you can only have your sins forgiven if you come and confess your sins to a priest, in a box, behind a little thing, whatever it's called. And some people say that. The only way that our prayers to God can be heard is if a, if a priest says them for us, as if the priest is special. They make up extra rules that is not how God works. When Jesus has come, He has given us His Spirit and given us direct access to God. You don't need to come through me or Lachlan or a connect group leader or elders. There's no special thing that we have that's going to enable your prayers to get to God. You have access to God. So how dare we limit people's forgiveness to say it must come through this one person. Oh, Jesus limits it. God limits it. It only comes through Jesus. But we have access to Him through faith by the work of the Spirit. Another way we do it, I heard of a church... Um, where they had said to someone in their church, if you leave our church, you leave the covering of our church. You should never leave this church. You must stay. Susie, the other week, left our church. And you know what happened to her? She got hit by a bus. God's Word doesn't say you can't leave a local church. Leaving a local church should hurt because of the relationships we're leaving behind, and you want to think through that. 
But you don't want to create rules that the Bible doesn't have. Now, you walk away from the church of the apostles, from the one true faith that the Bible says, then yes, you are walking away from God, but they're creating extra rules. You must stay here. It's kind of... Or or think about giving. Some people say that you must give 10%. The Old Testament said you must give the first 10%, and people then take that rule and apply it to our giving today, when the New Testament just doesn't do that. The New Testament doesn't give a figure. The New Testament says that we need to be sacrificial and generous. Not that we must give 10%. For some people, for students perhaps, or for um, single mothers, to give 10% of their income means that they're going without food. It actually just becomes this heavy burden on them that God doesn't actually put on them. Now, for others of us, we can give far more than 10%. And we need to take the rule of going, actually, the Word says to be sacrificial and generous. We need to each work that out. But to say there is a rule that you must keep is to be clearer than God's Word is. We must not do that. Secondly, Jesus highlights their lack of mercy and compassion. All these guys care about is these rules, sticking to the rules that they have. God is a God who is loving and merciful. His heart isn't to condemn. He does judge, but He ends up judging us reluctantly, not wanting to bring down these rules on people, but wanting all people to be saved. Jesus says in a very similar incident in chapter 13, verse 15 on the Sabbath, where there is this woman who's been bent over for 18 years, He says, should not she be free on the Sabbath day? You're saying, no, don't heal today, do it tomorrow. We have a God who cares, who is full of mercy and compassion. And so His people need to be full of mercy and compassion like Him. I think sometimes we can step back and think that God doesn't care for us. And He really is just like some big dictator in the sky, moving pawns around on a chessboard, but he doesn't care. But that's not the God we meet in Scripture. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, have a look at this. Psalm 56, verse 8. About God, he says, You yourself have recorded my misery. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your records? God keeps a record of every tear that has left your eye ducts. He knows your pain. He knows what it is like to live in a world that is broken. Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He just says, through this time where sin is running ripe, hold on. The only reason I'm not coming back and putting an end to suffering and pain right now is that I'm giving people more time to come back to me, just like I gave you more time to come back to me. I know your pain. Will you just see Jesus for who He is? They turned God's rules into cruel ones. They had a lack of mercy and compassion. And they were hypocritical. They broke the rules that they held others to. You ever found yourself in that situation where you've got this kind of ideal, this rule that you kind of have for life, and you say to others, you should do this. You should make sure you never speak on the phone in the car. It's one of the things I've been trying to help our family to do. But then um, I was in the car the other day, and I, was, I grabbed the answer, the phone calls that came, it was someone that I had to answer the phone, and I think one of our kids just went, I don't think you're supposed to do that, Dad. I'm like, oh, this is different. 
How easy it is to have one standard for ourselves and a different one for others. We must make sure our standards are not ones that we come up with. We must make sure they are driven from God's Word. We must not have one for us and one for others. We must not say, you can't heal on the Sabbath, and at the same time be happy to reach in and pull out our ox or our son from a well. Now, seeing Jesus rightly changes how we rightly live as well. Seeing Jesus rightly changes how we rightly live, His way, with Him at the centre. One question that I have at this point in in the kind of narrative of Luke is, why does Luke put a story that's so similar to a one that was just 20 verses earlier in here? We just heard when, when Lyndon preached a few weeks ago, um, a story on the Sabbath with a woman with a crooked back, and now it was with the Pharisees and the leaders. Now it's the same thing here. Why is he put it in again? A different story, but the same thing. Is it that he's just trying to be complete and show you everything that happened? I think it's more than that. He's trying to give us a picture of the hardness of our human condition, to show us what we're like. These leaders of the Jewish religion are in exactly the same place they were. Just 20 verses earlier. We've been through this before, but they haven't changed. They've heard Jesus on this stuff before, and they haven't changed. They've seen what he said about the Sabbath. They've seen him talk about that he is the Lord and that the Sabbath is for man, and they have not changed. They're still sticking to their rut of going, no, we must keep this law. I think Luke is asking us, does that describe you? Does that describe your battle with sin? You've heard what God said on it. You've heard what you need to do, but you just haven't changed. Does that maybe describe your relationship with Jesus? You've been coming along for a while, you've been confronted with the Word of God, but life goes on and nothing's changed. You've never made that step to trust in the evidence that exists. You may have been coming along and watching Jesus for a while. The question is, Have you seen Him? Are you willing to let Him perform heart surgery on you? Are you willing to invite this man who turns the world of our lives upside down in the face of others, in the presence of others at dinner parties, are you willing to let Him turn your world upside down and let Him rule your life? Are you willing to let Him perform heart surgery on you? It's scary being around Jesus. But it's even scarier letting our own hearts drive us to death. At the end of this section, we see that those who set out to trip up Jesus are left in silence. They have nothing to say. They have nothing to defend themselves with. If we keep turning the volume of Jesus' influence down, if we keep postponing the work that needs to be done in our lives, we too will be silenced. On that last day, with nothing to say before our God except the verdict guilty. Let me ask you today what sin is God dealing with in your life at the moment? Are you letting Him grow and change you? Or are you remaining unchanged? Are you watching Jesus but not seeing Him? Well, the second question we have to look at, the second two will be a little bit quicker. Um, Second question is this. 
Are you seeking your own glory rather than the one who was glorified? Scene two comes along. It's the same dinner party, and we read from verse seven of chapter 14. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When, you're invi- when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give up your place to this man. Then, in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here Jesus continues heart surgery on these Pharisees and I think on us too. He turns from the leader of the Pharisee to the guests that the Pharisees invited. And again, do you really want Jesus at dinner? The thing that Luke records is that Jesus noticed that when the guests came, they tended to seek places of importance on their own. Doesn't that sound like us? Our natural inclination is to try and be important. But before it's about us, before it's even about them, I think, again, it's about Jesus. For if you see who Jesus is at this dinner party, And the place of honour that his father will give him when he gets raised to life, then you'd recognise who we are and the rightful place that we deserve. And to place yourself ahead of Jesus, if you strive for your own position now, the brief and temporary glory that was not yours in the first place, that you stole for a while, will result in your demotion to the bottom of the pit in front of all humanity. Seeing Jesus rightly changes how we rightly see ourselves too. We recognize He is the one who will be exalted. And that we need to humble ourselves before Him, these ones that were watching Him, these people at the dinner party who are striving to get positions of importance. Do you recognize who you are seeing? To humble yourself before Jesus now will result in Him exalting you when He returns. Christians, we should never be striving to be the most important. We should never be striving to be the most popular, to advance our position or our cause amongst others. We shouldn't need to go and get a selfie with the important people. That's not what we're about. We're not about the here and now. This idea that we often have about celebrity Christianity, I met this great one or that great one, it's ridiculous when you compare it to who Jesus is. (laughs) We are to take our lead from Jesus. Paul says to the Philippians this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The one who created all things and sustained all things emptied himself and died on a cross. But it didn't end there. Look at the result. Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
See, humility here is not just an attitude to follow. It is a person to worship. And in these verses, we get a picture of your future and mine. Every knee in heaven and on earth will bow before Jesus. That's a picture of the future. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are so bent on getting position and priority and importance from those around us. When Jesus says, what matters is your attitude to me. For there will be a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on the day that you and I meet God, every single one of us will be humbled. We're going to think we're going to stand there and say, Jesus, you're all right, but man, I'm awesome. All will be shown for what it really is. Our hearts will be open for all to see our motives, why we did what we did. An ugly day. The only question that will matter on that day, the only thing that has any bearing on what happens next, is did you hold on to your pride and say, I don't need Jesus? Or did you humble yourself? By seeing Jesus for who He really was, the true and living God, and letting Him reshape your life. There's a price to be paid for exalting yourself. And there is a blessing received for those who humble themselves before this God. Are you seeking your own glory rather than the one who was glorified? Are you living your life to get position rather than letting others go before you because you've been freed, because you trust in the one who will raise you up at the last day? Well, the third question that we look at tonight, question number three, are you limiting your horizon and missing out on true rewards? Are you limiting your horizon, missing out on true rewards? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, it's going to give you some tips. Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you'd be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. After offending the Pharisees, the guests... Jesus now goes back to the host and performs another round of heart surgery. He kind of shows them what's going on and he raises the question, do you really want Jesus to come to dinner? Do you really want him to sift through your life and shape and mould you? Do you want him to do it in front of your friends? Again, here their issue is not seeing Jesus rightly. They've missed who he is. And so they limit their view of what matters to here and now. How often do we seek reward now? How often do we use the opportunities that come up for gain, whether it be material, whatever the gain we want, we want it quickly, we want it now, we want to advance our purpose, advance our cause, we want to get our our return. What Jesus is saying is, when you see who I am, you won't use your family and friends and networks for your position When you see who I am and what I am bringing, you'll see the world very differently. Your horizon will be lifted from just here and now to a banquet beyond death's door. And that you are invited to that banquet if you see me as I am, if you trust in me, 
If you trust in my death and resurrection. If you focus on the here and now, you need to milk every minute of every relationship for every benefit you can. If this is all there is, your life is about getting as much as you can now. But if you see that Jesus is the one who will be exalted, and what he is bringing in pales everything else into insignificance, then you'll see the right way to live is not to gain reward now, but to seek others, enter through death's door and enjoy that banquet. People who won't repay you now, people you won't get benefit from now, the the hard people, the lame people, the people who don't have anything to offer you, you will focus on loving them because you have been loved by the God of the universe. See, seeing Jesus rightly changes how to rightly live. Living for the kingdom when you see him like that looks very different, doesn't it? It doesn't seek to be repaid now, but looks forward to that which can't be shown now, that which lasts forever. We need to let the true identity of Jesus shape the way we think about who we are friends with, who we spend time with. Do we spend time with the hard people? Or just those that are going to benefit us? Have you recognized in this story that we aren't the host? In this story, we aren't the Pharisees, or there's things to apply to us in both those cases. In this grand story of the God who invites us to his banquet that lasts forever, we are the poor. We are the lame, the maimed, the blind, those who can do nothing back to our God that have rejected him and have nothing to repay him with. We have no hope. Yet this host came to earth, died in our place and invited us to the dinner beyond death's door. Recognizing who we are changes how we live, changes what we do with our life, what matters will last and what matters won't. Now, I very rarely use Latin in my sermons. Pretty much that's because I don't know Latin. But I'm going to use Latin today. It's a phrase that I picked up from an important source called Aladdin. The, the phrase goes, quid pro quo. Do you know it? Basically, the phrase means, I'll do something for something. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Quid pro quo. There's a sense in which we in this world act that way in relationships, in jobs. I'll work, you give me money, we're sweet. That's how we work. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, we'll all get on in a good, happy life. That is not how Jesus treats us. And it's not how we are to treat others either. Think about the fights you've had in relationships with friends, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Think about what those fights were about. How often they start like this. But I did all this stuff for you and you never did anything for me. You never returned it. You never called me back. You were silent. I'm out. (laughs) Quid pro quo. Think about how often we treat others in the world around us. Like, 
you know, I'd invite you around for dinner, but it's just going to be hard. You know, that person was really draining on me, and I just, you know, I wanted to make sure that I stayed good in my spirit. So I've just kind of cut them out of my life a little bit, because they weren't really offering anything to the friendship. Imagine if God had said that to us. We'd be looking at death's door for eternity. But he didn't. When we had nothing to give, he stepped into this world. He died in our place. He was raised up so that we might have life because of nothing we had done but all that he had done. The person who has seen Jesus for who he really is will love people whether or not they're interested in coming into the kingdom. The person who's seen Jesus for who he really is is the person that arrives early at church. So they'll meet new people who might not know where to go and be able to chat, not because they're going to get anything out of those relationships, although they probably will. You'll meet someone and you get to share your life together. But the person who just turns up because they love and care for people because they have a God who turned up while they were still sinners. Jesus' loving is so inclusive it even extends to his enemies like you and me. Are you limiting your horizon and missing out on true rewards past death's door, spending eternity with people that you have invited in and shared your life and the message of Jesus with? Are you limiting your horizon and missing out on true rewards because you've failed to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done and you're so focused on getting ahead now and getting position and importance now? Let me tell you, if you are focused on the here and now, you will miss out on the banquet beyond death's door. Well, I began tonight by asking you the question, if you could invite anyone to dinner, who would you invite? What I want to know now is, would you invite Jesus? Would you invite him to the dinner of your life in front of your friends, where you know full well he'll perform heart surgery on you. But the even better question than that is this. Will you invite Jesus not just to dinner, but to reorder the way that you view the world? To reorder the way that you see relationships, the way that you see people, the way that you see God's law, rather than trying to keep the law, recognizing the freedom we have in it. Will you let him reorder the way you seek recognition, not from others around you, but from the God who died for you? Who will you seek your recognition from? Will you allow Jesus to do heart surgery on your life? It'll hurt, yes, but it's far better than letting your heart drive you to death. You might have been watching Jesus But have you seen him for who he really is? And has that changed how you live? Let me pray. Then we're going to answer some questions. Father God, tonight we have been confronted by your word. As we sit before you, we recognize we don't deserve to come to you. We don't deserve you to treat us as you have. We confess that we haven't treated others or you as we should have. 
And we haven't recognized the astounding difference seeing Jesus clearly is in our lives. We ask that you would forgive us. That you would so capture us by who Jesus is that we might live radically transformed lives, not for the here and now, but as your word clearly gives us life, that we would seek it the way your word says it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to love, to be free to love, because of the love that you've shown us, to love those who are hard, recognizing how hard we are. And Father God, we pray that you'd help us to rest in the amazing forgiveness and invitation that comes with your Son. We thank you that in Jesus our sins have been paid for. That our rebellion has been wiped clean. For those of us that trust in what Jesus has done, we have an eternal banquet to look forward to, not because of anything we have, but because of who Jesus is. Father, we pray this night, you would change us. That we might walk away from seeing Jesus renewed and ready to live with your priorities for your kingdom's sake. Amen. All right. A few questions. Here we go. Everyone going all right? All right? Sit down if you're going great. Brilliant. All right. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? Is it saying that we're to throw out the law? Great question. No. It's not saying we're to throw out the law. The law is helpful and that it points us uh, to our sinfulness. But what we must realize is that in Jesus, He fulfills the law. So flick with me, go, open your Bibles to Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15. No, it's not what I was looking for. <laughs> hate that. Um, is it 3.15? It's a great question. In the words of a great artist, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. No one knows you too. Um, basically, okay, we'll just go here. This will, this will work. Tooth. Yeah. We'll start from verse 13. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them. Therefore, so in other words, Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. I thought it was clearer that it said that somewhere around here. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has come to do that and he's therefore disarmed the rulers and authorities. They can't charge us with, you haven't obeyed the law anymore because he's done it fully. Therefore, he says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or the matter of a festival, a new Sabbath, a new moon or a Sabbath day. Here it is, I was right. 
These things are a shadow of what is to come. The substance is the Messiah. Do you see that? The Sabbath was something that was given that was a shadow of what Jesus was coming to do. He has come to fulfill the law. And so here he's saying, it's not that these things um, have been just done away with totally. The law still has the great help of helping us to recognize what sin is, that it's been forgiven in Christ and that Christ has fulfilled it far more than we ever could perfectly and that in Christ, we are now free from that law. So there you go. No, don't throw out the law. Two, use it to help you work out what sin is. Three, recognize Jesus has fulfilled it and seek to put him first. There you go. Next question. Come to newish. Should I invite poor people, perhaps beggars off the street, I take it that's the blind and lame in verse 12, into my house for meals? Yeah, great question. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? There's a number of questions about that. Yeah, it could be dangerous. Uh, it could see um, a whole lot of things happen. Uh, they could rob your house. Uh, there's all sorts of things that could happen. Uh, but I think if we go, no, I definitely wouldn't, we haven't heard Jesus. We haven't seen who we are. I think there's a reality that if you could reverse it as well. Should I invite rich people and, and people who are really well known into my house? Why wouldn't you? Well, perhaps because I'm trying to do it to say, oh, they came to my house. Do you know who I had in my house the other day? Yeah. How, aren't I great? Idiot. Shut up. No, we actually, I think, need to take Jesus seriously, which is why I think we need to recognize who he is. When you see him for who he is, it means we're free to love all. People like us who are poor. People like us who had nothing to give back. So the question is, why wouldn't you do this? Now, th- there's wisdom that you need to have. You need to trust God that he'll be... Um, sovereign, but there's also stupid things to do. If you're a single girl and you see some guy walking along the street drunk, you don't go, hey, come in. It's not going to end well for you. But maybe you think through, how can I love this person? How can I show the love that I have been shown to this person? If that's what's driving you, it's not about, you know, Jesus isn't saying, okay, get rid of all these stupid laws. And here's another one. Make sure you invite everyone into your house. He's not creating another thing that we need to keep or putting another burden on us, but he's pushing us to say, if you see Jesus as he is and what he has done for you, then why wouldn't you love people? Why wouldn't you seek to love all people? And again, if Jesus can't be saying, don't hang out with the fancy people, because that's whose house he's in. <laughs> he's doing it himself. So I think the reality is, recognize who Jesus is and love people with the love that he has shown us. Now, in saying that, I don't want to let us off the hook. I think it's the right question to ask, to keep thinking through, how can I love those that are hard to love? How can I do that in a way that is wise and loving? You know, will they make my couch smell? Maybe. Could you get that cleaned? Could you help them find a place and stay in contact with them and chat with them and meet up and read the Bible with them? I think that's how we need to think. Next question. What does it mean that we can be repaid at the resurrection? Aren't we saved as a gift and not a reward? Yeah, I think... I'm putting this down because I'm holding it. I think we forget that we have a great reward in heaven. 
that we are to live now to store up eternal treasures. Luke's going to be pointing this in the next couple of chapters, and he's pointed it out earlier. We are to be living in a way that the things that we seek go into eternity. So what does it mean we'll be repaid at the resurrection? It means we are seeking honor from those, rather than seeking it now and glory now, we're saying, I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to love those who aren't going to be able to repay me anything now. And, and the repayment that I'll get will be the glory that Jesus gets as I'm united with him by faith. As the world sees that Jesus is the king and ruler of the universe, as every, every tongue confesses and every knee is bowed, we get to say, through God's goodness, he united me to Christ. And I served him and I serve him. And I get to enjoy this totally because of what he has done. It is a gift. But I get to enjoy in his reward. Don't sell yourself short. There is a great reward for trusting Jesus. We never earn it. We never earn it. It comes through trusting him on his case. Next question. Concerning tithing, the book of Malachi says, bring the whole tithe, meaning 10% into the storehouses. I'm assuming that means this church. Uh, What is this section of the Bible telling us to do? Is it relevant to us today? Um, yes, it's relevant because we need to understand what uh, Malachi, God was talking about to Malachi there in the people in the Old Testament law. But we must understand that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Uh, the storehouses, no, it's not talking about the church. Uh, I think he's saying that there was part of what they were to do, give the first fruits to the Levites. The Levites were the, the, the priests who were set aside to look after the community. And that's the way that worked. It doesn't work that way anymore. Access to God doesn't come through high priests. There's no need to set them out. Access to God comes through faith in Jesus by the work of the Spirit. It's been totally transformed. And this idea of tithing is nowhere in the New Testament. It's just totally absent. Why? Colossians 3, 17, 16. It's been 2, 16. It's been fulfilled in Christ. He has come and, and in Christ we have access to God. How are we to give now? <laughs> generously, sacrificially. Look at 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, Look at what we'll see a little bit later in Luke as we work through there. So is it relevant to us today? Yes, because we see that we are to give the first things to God. Is it 10%? Actually, it was more like 22% when you looked at all the other offerings they were to give uh, and you added that up over the seven years and what was to happen there. Uh, But it's relevant because we need to see it as fulfilled in Christ. Okay, next question. I'm assuming you'll stop me when we've got enough. We heard today that we should humble ourselves before Christ. Practically, how does that look like? How do I invite Jesus into my life? Great question. How do we humble ourselves before Christ? We recognize that He is God, that He made you. Recognize that we are sinful and broken, that we haven't treated Him as God. And we come to Him and we say, I'm sorry for the way that I've acted against you. Please forgive me. Please rule my life. Kind of like saying, I'm not going to drive anymore. Jesus, I'm going to let you set the direction for my life. I'm going to let you be number one in my life. And saying, well, I trust you so much that you are God, that you've died in my place, that you've offered me life, that I'm going to let you call the shots. And so you ask him, please help me to do that. Help me to put you first in my life. Actually, I might just pray a prayer now, that if you want to do that, if you want to say tonight, yes, I've been watching, long-time watcher, first-time caller, now is the time to actually call in and to say, I want to put my life in Jesus' hands. Why don't you just say this prayer? There's nothing special, no magic words, it doesn't come from a fancy person up the front. Speak to God and say, sorry for what I've done. Thank you that you've died in my place. Please forgive me and help me to put you as my king. I'll pray.
Father God, we are sorry that we have rejected you. Thank you so much that Jesus came to earth and died in my place. Well, I didn't deserve it. Well, I had nothing to offer. Please forgive me. Please help me to put Jesus as the ruler of my life and to serve him all my days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer tonight, then it would be great to chat to someone. Maybe the person that invited you here or me or someone that comes here and just say, hey, look, I want in. And to get connected, to chat to someone about what the next steps are to keep serving Jesus. It's an exciting time. I'd love to chat with you more about that. So come and chat with me or the person uh, that, that brought you and we can see what those next steps are. Meanwhile, why don't we stand and remind one another of what Jesus has done for us as we sing God's word to one another in song. Let's stand and sing. Mm-hmm.